0: Volume Two, Part One of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolina. Histories, Volume Two by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by E. D. Godley. VOLUME 2, PART 1 After taking Babylon, Darius himself marched against the Scythians. For since Asia was bursting with men, and vast revenues were coming in, Darius desired to punish the Scythians for the wrong they had begun when they invaded Media first, and defeated those who opposed them in battle. For the Scythians, as I have said before, ruled Upper Asia for twenty-eight years, they invaded Asia in their pursuit of the Cimmerians, and ended the power of the Medes, who were the rulers of Asia before the Scythians came. But when the Scythians had been away from their homes for twenty-eight years, and returned to their country after so long an absence, as much trouble as their Median war awaited them, they found themselves opposed by a great force. For the Scythian women, when their husbands were away for so long, turned to their slaves. Now the Scythians blind all their slaves, because of the milk they drink, and this is how they get it. Taking tubes of bone very much like flutes, they insert these into the genitalia of the mares, and blow into them, some blowing, while others milk. According to them, their reason for doing this is that blowing makes the mare's veins swell, and her other drop. When done milking, they pour the milk into deep wooden buckets, and make their slaves stand around the buckets and shake the milk. They draw off what stands on the surface, and value this most. What lies at the bottom is less valued. This is why the Scythians blind all prisoners whom they take, for they do not cultivate the soil, but are nomads. So it came about that the younger generation grew up, born of these slaves and the women. And when the youths learned of their parentage, they came out to fight the Scythians returning from Media. First, they barred the way to their country by digging a wide trench from the Tauric mountains to the broadest part of the mesian lake. And then, when the Scythians tried to force a passage, they camped opposite them and engaged them in battle. There were many fights, and the Scythians could gain no advantage." At last one of them said, "'Men of Scythia, look at what we are doing. "'We are fighting our own slaves. "'They kill us, and we grow fewer. "'We kill them, and shall have fewer slaves. "'Now, then, my opinion is that we should drop our spears and bows, "'and meet them with horsewhips in our hands. "'As long as they see us armed, "'they imagine that they are our equals and the sons of our equals.' Let them see us with whips and no weapons, and they will perceive that they are our slaves. And taking this to heart, they will not face our attack. The Scythians heard this and acted on it, and their enemies, stunned by what they saw, did not think of fighting, but fled. Thus the Scythians ruled Asia, and were driven out again by the Medes, and returned to their own country in such a way. Desiring to punish them for what they had done, Darius assembled an army against them. The Scythians say that their nation is the youngest in the world, and that it came into being in this way. A man whose name was Tagitaus appeared in this country, which was then desolate. They say that his parents were Zeus, and a daughter of the Burysthenus river. I do not believe the story, but it is told." Such was Tagita's lineage. He had three sons, Lipoxes, Apoxes, and Calaxes, youngest of the three. In the time of their rule, the story goes, certain implements, namely a plough, a yoke, a sword, and a flask, all of gold, fell down from the sky into Scythia. The eldest of them, seeing these, approached them, meaning to take them, but the gold began to burn as he neared and he stopped then the second approached and the gold did as before when these two had been driven back by the burning gold the youngest brother approached and the burning stopped and he took the gold to his own house in view of this the elder brothers agreed to give all the royal power to the youngest Lipok says it is said was the father of the Scythian clan called Alhatai, Apoxes, the second brother, of those called Catiari and Trespians, the youngest, who was king, of those called Paralatai. All these together bear the name of Scolati, after their king. Scythians is the name given them by the Greeks. This, then, is the Scythians' account of their origin and they say that neither more nor less than a thousand years in all passed from the time of their first king tagitaus to the entry of darius into their country the kings guard this sacred gold very closely and every year offer solemn sacrifices of propitiation to it whoever falls asleep at this festival in the open air having the sacred gold with him is said by the scythians not to live out the year for which reason, they say, as much land as he can ride round in one day is given to him. Because of the great size of the country, the lordships that Collectes established for his sons were three, one of which, where they keep the gold, was the greatest. Above and north of their neighbours, of their country, no one, they say, can see or travel further, because of showers of feathers, for earth and sky are full of feathers, and these hinder sight. This is what the Scythians say about themselves and the country north of them. But the story told by the Greeks who live in Pontus is as follows. Heracles, driving the cattle of Geryones, came to this land, which was then desolate, but is now inhabited by the Scythians. Geryones lived west of the Pontus, settled in the island, called by the greeks Erythia, on the shore of ocean near gadira outside the pillars of heracles as for ocean the greeks say that it flows around the whole world from where the sun rises but they cannot prove that this is so heracles came from there to the country now called scythia where encountering wintry and frosty weather he drew his lion skin over him and fell asleep and while he slept his mares, which were grazing yoked to the chariot, were spirited away by divine fortune. When Heracles awoke, he searched for them, visiting every part of the country, until at last he came to the land called the Woodland, and there he found, in a cave, a creature of double form that was half maiden and half serpent. Above the buttocks she was a woman, below them a snake. When he saw her, he was astonished, and asked if she had seen his mares straying. She said that she had them, and would not return them to him before he had intercourse with her. Heracles did, in hope of his reward. But though he was anxious to take the horses and go, she delayed returning them, so that she might have Heracles with her for as long as possible. At last she gave them back, telling him, These mares came, and I kept them safe here for you and you have paid me for keeping them, for I have three sons by you. Now tell me what I am to do when they are grown up. Shall I keep them here, since I am queen of this country, or shall I send them away to you? Thus she inquired, and then, it is said, Heracles answered, When you see the boys are grown up, do as follows, and you will do rightly. Whichever of them you see bending this bow, and wearing this belt so, Make him an inhabitant of this land, but whoever falls short of these accomplishments that I require, send him away out of the country. Do so, and you shall yourself have comfort, and my will shall be done. So he drew one of his bows, for until then Heracles always carried two, and showed her the belt, and gave her the bow and the belt, that had a golden vessel on the end of its clasp. And— having given them, he departed. But when the sons born to her were grown men, she gave them names, calling one of them Agithyrsus, and the next Gelonus, and the youngest Scythes. Furthermore, remembering the instructions, she did as she was told. Two of her sons, Agithyrsus and Gelonus, were cast out by their mother and left the country, unable to fulfil the requirements set. But Scythes, the youngest— fulfilled them, and so stayed in the land. From Scythes, son of Heracles, come the whole line of kings of Scythia, and it is because of the vessel that the Scythians carry vessels on their belts to this day. This alone his mother did for Scythes. This is what the Greek dwellers in Pontus say. There is yet another story, to which account I myself especially incline. It is to this effect, the nomadic Scythians inhabiting Asia, when hard pressed in war by the Masegatae, fled across the Araxes river to the Sumerian country, for the country which the Scythians now inhabit is said to have belonged to the Sumerians before, and the Sumerians, at the advance of the Scythians, deliberated as men threatened by a great force should. Opinions were divided. Both were strongly held, but that the princes was the more honourable. For the people believed that their part was to withdraw and that there was no need to risk their lives for the dust of the earth. But the princes were for fighting to defend their country against the attackers. Neither side could persuade the other, neither the people the princes nor the princes the people. The one party planned to depart without fighting and leave the country to their enemies, but the princes were determined to lie dead in their own country and not to flee with the people. FOR THEY CONSIDERED HOW HAPPY THEIR SITUATION HAD BEEN, AND WHAT ILLS WERE LIKELY TO COME UPON THEM IF THEY FLED FROM THE NATIVE LAND. HAVING MADE UP THEIR MINDS, THE PRINCES SEPARATED INTO TWO EQUAL BANDS, AND FOUGHT WITH EACH OTHER UNTIL THEY WERE ALL KILLED BY EACH OTHER'S HANDS. THEN THE Sumerian PEOPLE BURIED THEM BY THE Tiras RIVER, WHERE THEIR TOMBS ARE STILL TO BE SEEN, AND HAVING BURIED THEM, LEFT THE LAND and the Scythians came, and took possession of the country left empty. And to this day there are Sumerian walls in Scythia, and a Sumerian ferry, and there is a country Sumeria, and a strait named Sumerian. Furthermore, it is evident that the Sumerians, in their flight from the Scythians into Asia, also made a colony on the peninsula, where the Greek city of Sinope has been founded. And it is clear that the Scythians pursued them, and invaded Media, Missing their way, for the Cimmerians always fled along the coast, and the Scythians pursued with the Caucasus on their right until they came into the Median land, turning inland on their way. That is the other story current among Greeks and foreigners alike. There is also a story related in a poem by Aristes, son of Caustrobius, a man of Proconnesus. This Aristes possessed by Phoebes, visited the Isidones. Beyond these, he said, live the one-eyed Arimaspians, beyond whom are the griffins that guard gold, and beyond these, again, are the Hyperboreans, whose territory reaches to the sea. Except for the Hyperboreans, all these nations, and first the Arimaspians, are always at war with their neighbours. The Isidones were pushed from their lands by the Arimaspians, and the Scythians by the Isidonis, and the Sumerians, living by the southern sea, were hard-pressed by the Scythians, and left their country. Thus, Aristes' son story does not agree with the Scythian account about this country. Where Aristes wrote this came from, I have already said. I will tell the story that I heard about him at Proconnesus and Cyzicus. It is said that this Aristes, who was as well-born as any of his town folk, went into a fuller shop at Proconessus, and there died. The owner shut his shop, and went away to tell the dead man's relatives, and the report of Aristius' death being spread about in the city was disputed by a man of Sisychus, who had come from the town of Ataque, and said that he had met Aristes going toward Sisychus, and spoken with him. While he argued vehemently the relatives of the dead man came to the fuller's shop with all that was necessary for burial but when the place was opened there was no Aristides there dead or alive but in the seventh year after that aristes appeared at Proconnesus and made that poem which the greeks now called the erasmus Peia, after which he vanished once again such is the tale told in these two towns but this i know happened to the metapontines in italy two hundred and forty years after the second disappearance of aristes as reckoning made at proconessus and metapontum shows me aristes so the metapontines say appeared in their country and told them to set up an altar to apollo and set beside it a statue bearing the name of aristes the proconessian for he said Apollo had come to their country alone of all Italian lands, and he, the man who was now Aristes, but then, when he followed the god, had been a crow, had come with him. After saying this, he vanished. The Metapontines, so they say, sent to Delphi, and asked the god what the vision of the man could mean, and the Pythian priestess told them to obey the vision, saying that their fortune would be better. They did as instructed— and now there stands beside the image of Apollo a statue bearing the name of Aristes. A grove of bay-trees surrounds it. The image is set in the market-place. Let it suffice that I have said this much about Aristes. As for the land of which my story has begun to speak, no one exactly knows what lies north of it, for I can find out from no one who claims to know as an eye-witness. For even Aristes— whom I recently mentioned, even he did not claim to have gone beyond the Isidones, even though a puppet. But he spoke by hearsay of what lay north, saying that the Isidones had told him. But all that we have been able to learn, for certain, by report of the father's lands, shall be told. North of the port of the Borystenites, which lies midway along the coast of Scythia, the first inhabitants are the Calypidae who are scythian greeks and beyond them another tribe called alazones these and the silipidae though in other ways they live like the scythians plant and eat grain onions garlic lentils and millet above the alazones live scythian farmers who plant grain not to eat but to sell north of these the niuri north of the niuri the land is uninhabited so far as we know these are the tribes that the Hippanus River, west of the Boristines. But on the other side of the Boristines, the tribe nearest to the sea, is the tribe of the Woodlands. And north of these live Scythian farmers, whom the Greek colonists on the hypanis River, who call themselves Orbiopolite, call Boristinete. These farming Scythians inhabit a land stretching east a three days' journey to a river called Panty Capes and north, as far as an eleven-days voyage, up the Borysthenes, And north of these the land is desolate for a long way. After the desolation is the country of the man-eaters, who are a nation apart and by no means Scythian, and beyond them is true desolation, where no nation of men lives, as far as we know. But to the east of these farming Scythians, across the Panticapes river, you are in the land of nomadic Scythians, who plant nothing nor plough, and all these lands except the woodlands are bare of trees. These nomads inhabit a country to the east that stretches fourteen days' journey to the Geris river. Across the Geris are those lands called Royal, where the best and most numerous of the Scythians are, who consider all other Scythians their slaves." Their territory stretches south to the Tauric land, and east to the trench that was dug by the sons of the blind men, and to the port called the Cliffs on the mesian Lake, and part of it stretches to the Tenes River. North of the royal Scythians live the black-cloaks, who are of another and not a Scythian stock. And beyond the black-cloaks the land is all marshes, and uninhabited by man, as far as we know. Across the Tennaes it is no longer Scythia. The first of the districts belongs to the Saromaitae, whose country begins at the inner end of the Mesian lake, and stretches fifteen days' journey north, and is quite bare of both wild and cultivated trees. Above these, in the second district, the Bedini inhabit a country thickly overgrown with trees of all kinds. North of the Bedini the land is uninhabited for seven days' journey. After this desolation, and somewhat more toward the east wind, live the Tisagetai, a numerous and separate nation, who live by hunting. Adjoining these, and in the same country, live the people called Yirkai. These also live by hunting, in the way that I will describe. The hunter climbs in a tree, and sits there concealed, for trees grow thickly all over the land. And each man has his horse at hand, trained to flatten on its belly for the sake of lowness, and his dog. And when he sees the quarry from the tree, he shoots with the bow and mounts his horse and pursues it, and the dog follows close behind. Beyond these, and somewhat to the east, live Scythians again, who revolted from the royal Scythians, and came to this country. As for the countryside of these Scythians, All the land mentioned up to this point is level and its soil deep, but thereafter it is stony and rough. After a long journey through this rough country, there are men inhabiting the foothills of high mountains, who are said to be bold from birth, male and female alike, and snub-nosed and with long beards. They speak their own language and wear Scythian clothing, and their food comes from trees. The tree by which they live is called Pontic. It is about the size of a fig-tree, and bears a fruit as big as a bean, with a stone in it. When this fruit is ripe, they strain it through cloth, and a thick black liquid comes from it, which they call ashu. They lick this up, or drink it mixed with milk, and from the thickest leaves of it they make cakes, and eat them. They have few cattle, for the pasture in their land is not good. They live under a tree each, covering it in winter with a white felt cloth, But using no felt in summer. These people are wronged by no man, for they are set to be sacred, nor have they any weapon of war. They judge the quarrels between their neighbours. Furthermore, whatever banished man has taken refuge with them is wronged by no one. They are called Argipians End of Volume two Part one Recording by Carolina